thanks so much for being here, especially to all the guests and um, for the parents today, an extra um, special thank you for being so patient with the little ones. Good that they're downstairs now and uh, Chloe and the team are looking after them and I'm sure they're, they're delighted. We're in a series here in Redeemer called What Kind of Human? So we're going to just keep going in that series. So if you're a guest, you're getting to jump in on that. We're week three. I'm bringing the third part. And uh, we're going to talk about living with sacred rhythms. I'm going to try and keep this uh, not too long this morning. We can kind of get out of here and move on with our Sundays. Um, I loved Popeye growing up. Any Popeye fans? It's not really on to you. <laughs> so when Popeye got frustrated or confused or felt inadequate, he would simply say, I am what I am. Um, that's the kind of phrase that he used to come up with. In all likelihood, Popeye probably hadn't discovered the self-help category in Waterstones. He probably wasn't aware of his inner child or um, in touch with his personality type. He was a simple, seafaring, olive oil-loving sailor man. And there was a beautiful honesty in his I am what I am. But there's also a bit of a, a sadness to that mantra too, I believe, because when it we come up against limits and shortcomings. Um, there's a resignation in that kind of phrase, I am what I am, it is what it is. There's freedom and there's beauty and there's honesty in it, but there also is resignation. There's, there's no real possibility there for anything different, for, for change or for growth, because things are the way they are. I am what I am. What Popeye failed perhaps to understand is that we as human beings aren't static. We're always changing. We're always being formed one way or another. Two dates for you, 1440 and 2007. Anyone want to guess what happened in those two dates? In Germany in 1440, uh, the Gutenberg invented, Mr. Mr. Gutenberg, Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, which obviously led to the printing revolution. That's why we have books, where we have information, because the printing press was invented, and it led to the Protestant Reformation, it led to the Bible being, being printed, it led to the Enlightenment, and the world has not been the same again. In California in 2007, a man called Steve Jobs stood up and announced something called a smartphone. That also has changed the world. The digital revolution kicked in only in 2007, and some of you can't even remember that in the room. But that led, of course, to... Uh, the app store, social networks, and new industries emerging, while old industries like the news, the media, disrupted forever. Who could have foreseen what would have happened because we can carry little computers in our pockets? Both the printing press and the iPhone, these technological revolutions, have fundamentally changed us as human beings. Sometimes, often, for the better, um, because of these technologies, they're incredibly democratizing technologies most of the time. They've leveled the playing field for so many in this world that we live in. The exchange of information and ideas. And although that democratization isn't perfect, of course, there are people exploiting that for their own good. Think fake news, all the rest of it. But they have, in the large part, the printing press and the digital revolution through the smartphone have been for the better. Have you ever seen this image? It's a Banksy mural. Anyone seen that before? It's called Mobile Lovers. And the graffiti here sees a pair of lovers who are in their kind of just home from work attire, embracing in the doorway, and of course being distracted by the glow 
of their smartphone. You can move on from that now, Noah. Despite all the positive impact of technology, of these kind of technologies, um, there's been an increased spike in mental illness and anxiety and addiction to these devices. Science tells us that our attention spans are shortening with each year. There's a thing called the attention economy, which has sprung up. Companies vying for our attention. We're distracted 24-7, noise and ads and distraction. We all know that, right? At some level, we all have, we're living in this world. This is the world we live in. And that dependency on our devices, something that was so indispensable about 10, 12 years ago is now utterly indispensable. Something that was dispensable is now utterly indispensable. And there's very few places in the world that you can go without being connected. You can even carry a connection on your wrist if you're going hiking in the Himalayas. You can be connected in the most obscure places. Now, have you heard the famous story of Coca-Cola who said that their main competitor was water? Or have you heard the story about the CEO of Netflix who said that their main competitor was not any other streaming platform but sleep? Go home and Google that. <laughs> Go home and Google that. That is actually Reed Hastings' quotes. You heard me right, because these technology companies, these companies are competing for our attention. More time on the platform, attention equals money, and all of this is shaping us. Um, these companies are spending thousands of pounds looking at human psychology so that they can hack our psychology and get us to keep using their services. Nicholas Carr wrote a book called The Shallows, and he, he discussed a whole number of neurological studies that revealed the effects of digital media, particularly on our brains, under uh, developing cognitive abilities, like deep reading or long-term memory or contemplation, which leads to wisdom. Those things are being risked, those things are being affected directly by the use of our smartphones. The brain's normal plasticity, he argues, can work for us, but it can also work against us. If we are predominantly doing cursory kind of speed reading or online or offline on our phones, it over time changes us. McLuhan's dictum remains true. We make our tools, and our tools then make us. Pascal said that all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room. And that goes further in terms of our spiritual consequences, the attention economy, the distraction every day, robbing us of our ability to be present. Do me a favor for one moment. Just sit up a little bit straight in your chair. Just for one moment, very quick, 30 seconds. Put your two feet flat on the floor and just take a big breath and out again. Feel the floor holding your feet beneath you. Feel the chair holding you. Be present in this moment. You can relax. <laughs> I am what I am is not true because we are always being formed constantly. If you do nothing for the rest of your life, that is a decision to do something. Every day we're being formed for better or for worse. Our environments, our relationships, our devices, our habits, our choices are forming us 
and I've just used two illustrations of smartphones and you know, other things, but it, this is as old as the age of time, that we're not static. What does it mean to be human? It doesn't mean to be static. We're always changing. One way or another, we are becoming something. And it's at the heart of kind of us as human beings too, because in January, many of us are going to wake up on January the 1st and we're going to set up some New Year's resolutions because we want to change. We want to like start that exercise regime. We want to start saving more money. We want to start reading more books or whatever is your New Year's resolution. We do want to change, to commit to some kind of transformation. And that is the story of God. That's the story that we find in the scriptures, that there's a journey that we're invited into of becoming, that God is invited onto a journey. God accepts us for who we are, of course. He loves us for who we are. But because we're made human, we're made to change, to grow, to be formed, to become. And he is deeply interested in us becoming. He is deeply interested in us growing and becoming fully alive and fully human. And we don't divide our lives up into the spiritual and the non-spiritual because all of life is spiritual. All of life is sacred and God is interested in all of it. And if that's the only thing you remember today, God is interested in every aspect of your life, all of it. And he wants you to flourish and grow. He wants you to be whole as a person. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that real transformation can happen. And through the way of Jesus, we find ourselves formed to become more like him. This idea in the scriptures is clear. Uh, in the New Testament, there's a Greek word that's so rich, two, well, two Greek words, Morphu, which we get the word morph, which means inward and real transformation. And St. Paul uses this when he writes in, fourth, in, in Galatians 4, until Christ is formed in you. Here he's getting at the idea that Christ is born in us, that we get to express his character and his goodness in our being. John Orberg says it like this, and it'll be on the screen behind. In Christ, we are pregnant with possibilities of spiritual growth and moral beauty so great that they cannot be described as anything less than the formation of Christ in our very lives. The New Testament has another word that's kind of related that Paul uses in his letter to the Romans when he says that we're not to be conformed to this world but transformed by the renewal of our minds in Romans 12. That word there is metamorphy, which we get the word metamorphosis from like a caterpillar that changes into a soaring butterfly. The children of God, the followers of Jesus, the ones living the way of Christ become unrecognizable as they become more like him, more like his image. The story of God, the story of our lives, if you're following Jesus this morning, the story of discipleship is not one just only of, of belonging, which is massive, but also of becoming. A journey of discovery and of growth and of change. And here's the kicker. If you just put, no, I'm joking. If you put 10 pounds in the back, you'll, your life will be changed forever. Exactly. That's not the way it works. The kicker is the change doesn't just happen to us. There is no silver bullet. We don't just wake up one day more like Jesus. We don't just find ourselves on fire. <laughs> 
with faith or having a holy encounter. We don't just have that wind in our sails. We don't think our way to change. We don't feel our way through our emotions to change. There is something more holistic at work by the power of the Spirit that helps us become more like Christ. The head, the heart, the hands all together, the thinking, the feeling, and the doing, an integration of who we are as whole human beings. We're uh, teaching this series from a book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. So if you want to look up more, I really recommend that book. And Peter Scazzaro, the author, says, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And what that's getting at there is that we are made as human beings to be whole, to be integrated. All of our lives matter. All of our personhood matters, our thinking, our feeling, and our doing. And there's some of you in this room today, and, and I say this with love and grace, that I've done this, I've been here. We can intellectualize our faith so much that we just get stuck there. We just get stuck in our head. I've been there. There's also some of us, and I've also been here too, where we just get stuck in our hearts, we get stuck in our emotions, and we can't move from there, and we kind of feel like this faith thing isn't working, and we disengage. So how do we begin to transform? How do we begin to realize the promise that Jesus said he's come to bring life, and life to the full? And I believe, and you can draw from that book that I've just recommended, but it's a holistic and integrated vision of not just our minds, yes, our minds and our hearts, but also our bodies, our, all of our lives. And I want to talk about this by talking about sacred rhythms. I'm going to try and do this really quickly. Sacred rhythms, Peter Scazzaro, he describes these as tools to help us to have spiritual growth a way of seeing transformation happen in our lives. Let me tell you a story, and it's about farming, and I'm kind of wary to talk about this because I've got my brother-in-law and my father-in-law in the room, and they know a lot more about farming than I do, but this is about farming in the Midwest of the USA. And Parker Palmer relates a story about farmers who would be preparing for blizzards, and they would tie a rope at the back door of their house as they would go out to the barn to ensure that they could return home safely. Because these blizzards came in quickly and fiercely and were highly dangerous. With the full force blowing, a farmer could not see the end of his or her hand. And many froze to death in those blizzards, disoriented by their inability to see. And they're only yards from their home. Not able to find their way, wandering in circles, lost in their own backyards. And if they lost grip on the rope, it became impossible to find their way home. Some froze within feet and within feet of their own front door, not realizing how close to safety they were. And to this day, in parts of Canada and the Midwest, the USA, meteorologists will actually counsel people, advise people to do that, to tie a rope to the back door when they go out in these blizzards when they know they're coming. And I feel like we live in a blizzard. The world that we live in is a blizzard all of the time. And few of us have a rope. And we need a rope. We need a rope. Many of us, we lose our way spiritually in the whiteout that's swirling all around us when we say maybe yes to too many things 
Maybe we're addicted to our devices. Maybe we're addicted to the news cycle on our TV screens. The demands from work and family. The demands to multitask and do more than we actually can accomplish. And we admire people who get so much done. And yet, so much of the time we find ourselves, it feels like we're in a blizzard. We're overscheduled. We're addicted to hurry. We're preoccupied. We're fatigued. And we reach the weekend exhausted. And that overproductivity becomes counterproductive because we just have no time left to do anything. And our free time becomes even more filled and our overburdened lives kind of spill over. And we Christians have got it all together, though we're not like that because we listen to sermons and we read books that advise us to try to create margin in our lives. But again, it's another thing to do and it's just reading. It's not actually living it out, is it? If we are honest, sometimes we can't stop. We're busy and we feel guilty that we're not being productive. And that's rooted in a belief that we have that we need. We are what we do, not we just are loved by God. And we go through the motions and we, you know what, you know the story. It's like a blizzard. And we can get swallowed up in it. And we need a rope to lead us home. We need a rope to lead us home. If we're gonna, I'm convinced about this that to be a follower of Christ today in the world that we live in, in the West, in the secular West, we need a rope. We need a way of living that actually leads to flourishing as human beings because the world we live in is like a blizzard at times. And I, I, I believe that God gives us a rope. I believe that in the scriptures and in the ancient wisdom, there's, there are ropes <laughs> Jeremiah 6, 16, we've talked about this a little bit in Redeemer already this year. It says this, stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and, he, and you will find rest for your souls. Over the centuries, there's this wealth of wisdom that the church has built up. Scripture and tradition also shows that there are ways of living, rhythms that we can live in that can actually help us, whether that's practicing community. Intentionally, it's hard to do that, to, to, to connect on a, with a community like this, for example. It's hard to do that sometimes, particularly after COVID. It's hard to get out and get doing that and invest in community, prayer, Sabbath, gratitude, hospitality, pilgrimage, silence, solitude, scripture reading, feasting, fasting, blessing, slowing down, giving. These are practices that help us find the groove, the rhythm that I think the ancient wisdom and the scriptures teach us will give us life and life to the full. And they're groundbreaking, they're countercultural against the Western culture that we live in. And they are powerful declarations when we anchor ourselves in, when we grab onto that rope about who we are, about who God is, about what our relationships and our values. For example, stopping for prayer and Sabbath. It's not meant to be one other thing to do, but it's a way of living towards a whole new destination, a whole new kind of human in the world. Jesus being our prototype. For example, prayer and Sabbath are ropes that will lead us back to God in the blizzard of life. They're anchors in the hurricanes of life. And when done as a want to rather than a have to, they actually can give us as a gift a rhythm 
that leads to life and flourishing. So with an integrated spirituality, when we make room in our lives, we make margin in our lives for practices like that as, as Christians, our cry is less, I am what I am, it is what it is, and more connected to the transformative power of, of the great I am, of the divine. Excuse the pun there. I think it's impossible for me to, in, on a dedication Sunday, in 30 minutes or less, to teach on the spiritual practices of the whole church from all time. So at this point, I really do want to encourage you to pick up that book. If you're really, in, if something's resonating with you this morning, pick up that book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and, and dig into it. Um, I'm going to give a few little tips at the end, maybe of, of some ways we can begin to, to do this, begin to find that rope again in our lives. Maybe you've found it in the past, maybe you can find it again. There's a photo on the screen that I want to show up, and I want to just talk a little bit about something that happened to me personally. I was in the Syrian desert. That's the one, John. There we go. That's me, I think in 2004, in the Syrian desert, looking out from an ancient Christian monastery. And it was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And it's when I first encountered this thing called the monastic, this, 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 this whole tradition in the church. And the silence, the remoteness, it was like a movie. It was like driving through sand and nothing else, getting out of a bus with other people, climbing 150 steps to the top of a hill where there was a, a monastery there. And it's one of the oldest Christian communities in existence. Redeemer, I think, is 12 or 13 years old, Gillian, am I right? This community has been praying since the fourth century. I want to talk a little bit about that and what it, how it relates to what I've been talking about this morning. Pete Gregg, in his book, How to Pray, he talks about the explosion of what are called the desert fathers and mothers. Where did these people come from? And as Christianity had grown up, uh, as a spite persecution, from a little tiny sect in the Middle East to the dominant faith of the Roman Empire, the unthinkable happened. The emperor became a Christian, and it's disputed and questionable. But quickly, Roman temples were converted to churches. Pagan feasts became Christian festivals. And a faith that was once despised and, rev and reviled became socially advantageous. Christians acquired status. They got a blue tick mark. <laughs> they were verified. The church got power from a sect to the main religion of the whole of the Roman Empire, but some Christians were disturbed. They looked at the simplicity, the rhythms of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and they were worried that the gospel was being compromised by empire. And so they rushed to the Egyptian and the Syrian wilderness. And they became known as the desert fathers and mothers, and at the heart of their spirituality was an approach to prayer that included silence and solitude, seeking the Lord. And this was one of the earliest uh, that I got the privilege of, of actually being there for a few nights. And surprisingly, when they went there, the world in the blizzard of the Roman Empire figured out that they were struggling too, and they decided to go on pilgrimages to the people in the desert, which is why pilgrimage become, became a practice in the Christian church. These lives of austerity that these monastic people were living, these this deep spirituality, this constant prayer was a prophetic announcement to the world around. There's a rope. There's a different way of being in the world. There's a different way of living. 
It was from those monasteries that missionaries were sent out and they eventually reached the shores of Britain and Ireland and they evangelized these islands before the Roman Empire got here, before the Roman church got to Canterbury. The desert fathers and mothers and missionaries sent out from those places reached these shores. It's why we have Celtic Christianity in Ireland and evangelized Ireland. Thomas Merton, who who was a, a Trappist monk. He had lived a high life in New York City in the 20th century. He talks about those early desert pioneers, and he said this, they knew that they were helpless to do any good for others as long as they floundered about in the wreckage. But once they got a foothold on solid ground, things were different. Then they not only had the power, but the obligation to pull the whole world to safety after them. In other words, they threw the world a rope. And I'm not saying this morning that we all need to become monks. I'm not even saying that we need to travel to monastic communities, although I do believe that it is a valuable thing to do. But what I'm saying is that we can learn so much from the ancient wisdom of the church and from the scriptures and from the lives of those that have gone before us about the importance of carving out in our lives prayer, silence, solitude in our week, in our lives, in some, in some shape or form. It'll be different for all of us. But at some point, it won't just happen. We won't just wake up someday looking like Jesus. At some point, we just want to give ourselves to that journey and ask the Lord to come and change us. I love this verse, and many of you will know it. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. One of my heroes is Eugene Peterson, and he translated the whole of the Bible, as you do. And this is what he says in his translation in the message. Just listen to this. I love, it should be on the screen, but I love these words. Maybe you can find yourself in this. These are the words of Christ as interpreted by Eugene Peterson. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I love that verse and I love the phrase, the unforced rhythms of grace. And there's an invitation there from Christ today, maybe even to you today, to step into that way of life. There's a kind of imitation model there in that Jesus is inviting. Walk with me, do what I do. Follow me. Step into the unforced rhythms of grace. Grab the rope. Pull yourself to safety out of the blizzard. Find your way with me. That's the invitation. Perhaps that's resonating with some of you today. Jesus did this. He went to the solitary place in the scriptures. We're all out of time this morning. It's a long morning. I could go into all that. It's on my page. I'm not going to. But you know Jesus' life. He went in to retreat many, many times, pulled away from the crowds, and spent time with his father. And science backs up 
I can't get into that either because we've run out of time. But science backs up the beautiful reality of what science backs up the beautiful reality of what silence does to our brains, to the cortisol levels in our brains. It is a proven way for us to find ourselves. Prayer, meditation, silence, time with the Lord can rewire us and help us to breathe deeply in those unforced rhythms of grace. Psalm 46 verse 10 says this, Be still and know that I am God. I have a whole beautiful finish that talks about the beautiful life of Mother Teresa. I'm not going to go there, but there's a massive connection between a life of activism and a life of prayer. So I'm going to throw that in at the end. Because one of the objections is we don't have time to go to monasteries. We've got to do things for the Lord. And evangelical upbringing will teach us that because the great strength of evangelicalism is zeal and intensity to do things, to live out our faith. But when you look at the life of Mother Teresa, you will see, and it may come up on the screen, the intimacy with the Lord is completely connected to action. It's two sides of the same coin that we will not sustain our lives and we will not sustain bringing justice and working for the peace and the common good of our city and of our land unless we are people living, holding on to the rope, living in these unforced rhythms of grace, taking up the invitation that Jesus has put to us. So, Redeemer, I suppose that's where we finish this morning as we come to a close, as we come to the table behind me. The invitation this morning to us all is to reflect this week, perhaps, on how we might grab onto the rope again, how we might find our way. Maybe that looks like five minutes in the morning this week, just in silence, paying attention to the presence of the Lord with you in the Scriptures. There's one thing that we're doing here at Redeemer that I want to just mention, and there's a 30-day prayer challenge that our friends at 24-7 Prayer have organized. You can download an app. I know it seems completely counterintuitive to ask you all after what I've talked about this morning to go onto the app store and download an app. But the Lexio 365, you can see it at the bottom, Lexio 365 app is free and it's a really good app. It's not just words, there's audio recordings so you can just put it on in the car. It's five or ten minutes. And they're just calling Christians to grab the rope in November, to, to try a new habit, to begin to carve out space in our lives, to spend with the Lord in that quiet place. So maybe that's a way for you to begin this morning practically um, and join with us as some of us in this community are, are doing that. Can I invite you to stand? Can I invite John and Rosie to come and lead us in worship? And as we finish our worship this, this morning, we're going to finish at the table of Jesus, which is behind me, the table of, of bread and of wine. It's the Eucharist, it's communion. It's, it's when we come to remember Christ and what he has done for us, for his, his, his cruciform life, his self-sacrificial life poured out in love for us. He laid down his life for others. He laid down his life for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. So I'm going to invite Dan and I'm going to invite Jillian, who are senior leaders here in, in, in the community. And they're going to serve communion. If you're, you're new, there's a lot of new folks in the room. Um, the way that we do this is that you come forward and receive the bread and receive the wine. And Jillian and Dan will speak a blessing over you as you do that. So as soon as the 
the music starts, as soon as John starts to sing, I'm going to ask you all to form an orderly queue, maybe down this side, and just come to Dan first, and then Gillian. Collect a piece of bread, collect the wine, take it as you receive it. And as you do, can I encourage you, maybe the prayer on your heart might be, Lord, help me grab the rope. I receive these unforced rhythms of your grace. Help me to walk in them. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your example. Thank you for the life that you have given for me. Maybe that could be the prayer in our hearts. Maybe that could be the prayer as we taste of grace today in the bread and in the wine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus today. We thank you for his presence here. We thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for that invitation to come and find rest for our weary souls. Even now, Lord, as we come to the table, may you bless us and may you give us rest, deep rest. May you revive us. May you encourage us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John, please do become, come forward.